My guest, Anne Bookma, is an award-winning freelance journalist and the author of My Year of Living Spiritually, From Woo-Woo to Wonderful, One Woman's Secular Quest for a More Soulful Life. In 2017, she began a quest to become a more spiritual person. Uh, and I want to talk about that. You grew up in, and well, welcome, first of all. Thank nice you very much. You. Uh, you grew up in a fundamentalist Christian church, but left. Uh, why did you leave? When did you leave? How old were you? And how did it affect the relationship with your family? Right. Yeah, I grew up in uh, uh, a sect, I guess, a Canadian Reformed, Dutch Canadian Reformed church. Um, there's about maybe 10,000 members across Canada, and, and these folks started this church uh, when the, a lot of immigrants came from Holland in the 50s. So I grew up in a very insular world, um, you know, Christian uh, school, uh, church twice on Sunday, catechism on Wednesday, young people on Friday. Right. I really was uh, not encouraged to integrate with what we called Canadians, which was really the equivalent of heathen. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was warned, don't date any Canadian boys. So I often wondered why my family immigrated to Canada. Uh, so, you know, like anyone in a fundamentalist religion, uh, it was a very closed kind of life. And, um, I mean, I had a happy upbringing. I, I really, you know, had a wonderful family. But what, by the time I got to college and met Catholics and Jews and atheists and realized none of them had horns growing out of their head, I, you know, my eyes were opened. And I realized that the church that I grew up in was uh, extremely patriarchal and also very unecumenical and started to question. And that upset my family and caused a huge rift. I did leave the church and was basically threatened with excommunication. And there was a severing from my family when I was about 20, and it kind of lasted for a few decades. And what was that conversation like? The conversation yeah. with my family? Yeah. Uh, well, they were devastated. You know, when you believe with your whole heart in a religion or a belief system, and, uh, you know, you believe in eternal life and you want your children to have eternal life with you. And then one of them says, I don't believe it. It, it crushes you. And so especially my mother, who I was really close to, was extremely crushed and disappointed and I'd say ashamed. And I felt that shame as well. So it, was, it became a, a very sort of tenuous, you know, we're off and on periods when we were able to connect, but there was a lot of estrangement. And you have spent a career writing about lots of different things, but spirituality is a recurring theme in your work. Um, how did leaving the church and then having all this fallout from that decision, which must have been extraordinarily tough, you must have known what was going to happen, right? If you said, I can't do this, yes. you must have known what was going to happen and were prepared to take the consequences. Yes. And and so this all happens. What how did it inform the rest, I guess, the question is, the rest of your spiritual life in the in the short term? Were you just saying, I'm leaving the church, I'm leaving religion behind, I'm leaving all of that behind? Or was it a, a, a tempered situation where you're just having a different kind of spirituality in your life? I'd say it was tempered. Uh, you know, I have always been drawn to the pew. Uh, when I left the Canadian Reformed Church and I was sent a letter by the elders telling me my soul was sort of barred from the gates of heaven, um, and, uh, you know, I married a Catholic, which in my home was probably about the worst thing you could do, even though Catholics and Protestants essentially believe in the same God. Somehow that was just the most verboten thing I could do. Um, and so even when I left the Canadian Farm Church, you know, I had a flirtation with the Presbyterians that lasted a few months. 
and a long love affair with the United Church of Canada that lasted about uh, about 10 years. And I eventually found myself in the Unitarian Church, which is where I tend now. And, uh, you know, basically I consider myself a spiritual agnostic and I can worship there without leaving my brain at the door. Um, so I have always sort of been drawn to, to the pew. And I think that is the one good thing that came out of my history is the need to belong, the need to be part of community. And I, I think that's a really difficult thing for a lot of us to find these days. And that is one thing that a religious or faith or spiritual life can offer is is that sense of belonging. I think it's one of the most fundamental uh, needs that we have as human beings is a, is a sense to belong, to be part of a tribe. I'm just going to go back. I'll pick up on that in a sec. But what does it mean when you say uh, leave your brain at the door? Well, I think uh, in a lot of traditional religions, certainly fundamentalist religions, we're required to accept the unbelievable. Um, you know, the idea of a, a mysterious father in heaven, I grew up with that as a very concrete idea. Um, the idea of the Virgin Mary. I mean, I, I don't want to besmirch religion. I don't uh, want to offend people. I'm not anti-religion. I'm just anti-dogma. And I feel people can believe whatever they want. Uh, but I have a right to believe what I want, too. And uh, so I think... Uh, some of the things I was brought up to believe uh, that I was born sinful, uh, that Eve tempted Adam, you know, all the stories of, of the Bible, which are wonderful fables, I think, and have messages, but I was expected to believe them literally, that women have no right to have a voice in the church, in religious life, um, that everyone else was wrong, and we were the only true church, all, our small sect of 10,000 people out of 7 billion in the world. I mean, it was preposterous, and yet I did believe it for, for a good 18 years. I, you know, we love our parents. We tend to believe what they tell us until we... Uh, till, you know, the scales fall from our eyes, I suppose. Well, and that was your normal. Yes. That was the, the situation that you were born and raised in. That was just, this is normal. That's and right. Did you assume that other people lived this kind of life as well? I grew up assuming other people were bad um, until I got to know people outside of my own community. And I, I think this is true for a lot of fun fundamentalist faiths is that we are, you know, indoctrinated, brainwashed, taught, whatever word you want to use. Um, you know, certain certain ideas. And uh, if we remain sheltered in our communities and don't meet people from outside our faith group or have a secular education, I mean, there's a reason why a lot of fundamentalist religions don't want you to have higher education mm -hmm. or comparative religion. Um, so uh, I think it's really important to to move beyond those communities. And it is so difficult for people in those faith groups to leave. I know what I went through. I mean, I had a kind of psychological uh, fallout. I ended up in therapy. Uh, you know, I learned about religious trauma um, and, and consulted a psychologist who specializes in that. I mean, it, it's the worst thing in the world to lose the love of your family or the acceptance of your family. Leaving religion was easy, but losing my family for that time was very difficult. We talk about a sense of community uh, that happens uh, within, you know, sort of organized religion. And, you know, I grew up in a very, very small town and in a family that wasn't particularly spiritual or religious. But I grew up in a very small town that had six churches in it. And, you know, there were always 
church dinners. There was always, uh, you know, if someone was having a rough time, people would, you know, get together to raise money and, and, and help a family out and that kind of thing. And that, in many ways, I think is missing now. I think when we speak about organized religion, our mind goes to evangelicals in the U.S. Maybe it goes to, uh, you know, the troubles at the Catholic Church that we read about. But the real sort of ground roots religion, for me anyway, was all about community. I didn't go to church very often, but I would go to the church dinners and I would marvel at how everyone would come together. And that to me is the beauty of all of that. Can I ask what religion you were raised in? United Church. Lucky you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have a lot of respect for the United Church. We, we had chairs. We had pews. <laughs> we had a young minister, and we had uh, he got rid of all the pews and put chairs in so that uh, you could move the chairs around and use every sort of corner of the church. And and you know we did plays and things in the church. It was it was utilized as a, a hub of community activity as well as a place of worship. And that, to me, I think is is a kind of a wonderful thing. Right. The United Church, uh, you know, ha- has changed a lot over the years. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the mainline churches, the more liberal churches like the United Church, are losing numbers in droves. It seems fundamentalism is driven by fear and guilt, and those numbers are growing, while uh, more moderate uh, faith groups like the United Church are, are waning. However, the United Church is still a very strong presence in Canada. And I have written for the United Church Observer for about 15 years, and this book actually came out of a column I wrote for four years called Spiritual But Secular, and then I wrote a blog for the magazine My Year of Living Spiritually, which which got picked up as a book. So I do have a lot of uh, a lot of respect for the United Church, and it's interesting, you know, Greta Vosper, uh, the famous atheist minister in the United Church, has been allowed to retain the pulpit. Um, you know, uh, so these churches are starting to change and there are secular churches now, Oasis, Sunday Assembly, certainly the Unitarians. And you're right, Richard, that sense of community is so strong that a study showed that a lot of people will continue to go to a house of worship even if they don't believe the tenets of the faith because of that familial sense, that that need for bonding and, and, and tribalism almost. So, uh, But there are other things that are replacing that. There's secular groups now. For instance, AA, which a lot of people might see as a type of faith group to kick addiction, uh, has been very religiously based, and now there is a whole secular AA movement. There's about 10 secular AA groups in, in, in Toronto, and I write about that in my book. Uh, grief groups are often about the afterlife and comforting us with this idea of a, of a heaven. Now there's uh, grief without God groups. Uh, like I say, atheist ministers are, are on the rise. So things are changing, and people are finding community in all kinds of ways. We just have a minute left in this segment, but you talk about in the book something called SBNR, which is spiritual but not religious. And I guess that's what you're just talking about here, these grief without God, the idea of a secular AA. And that has become, uh, in a lot of ways, um, uh, uh, the new way forward, I think, for a great many people who want that sense of community, who want a place to feel like they belong, uh, and yet, you know, don't necessarily want to 
get on their knees and pray. That's right. SBNR is spiritual but not religious, and it's actually the fastest growing, in quotes, faith group in North America. 80 million North Americans identify as spiritual but not religious. My year of living spiritually from woo-woo to wonderful one-woman secular quest for a more soulful life. What's woo-woo? What does that mean? Well, woo-woo is a funny kind of word. Woo-woo is sort of a dismissive term, I suppose. Um, you know, we might talk about Reiki or crystals or mm-hmm. uh, essential oils, things like that, as woo-woo, New Age-ish, a silly. Um, but I kind of wanted to reclaim that word and, uh, you know, kind of make fun in a, in a little bit and show that there was a lightheartedness to yes. the book. It wasn't all earnest. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I did have some pretty fun woo-woo adventures, you know, past life regression and <laughs> and holotropic breath work and things that to me were just out of this world. Well, and we're going to talk about a lot of that stuff coming up in the show. Yeah. I, um, you know, what I tr- I've been a journalist for 30 years and what I tried to do with this book was to bring a Seeker's enthusiasm tempered by a journalist skepticism. So I went into this uh, with all these spiritual practices, doing the research first and just seeing what happened. Um, so woo-woo, you know, I think uh, I think it's just sort of a light-hearted term to that's used, but sometimes it's used dismissively, and I, I I try not to do that. I try to be respectful of all the practices that I tried in this book, even if they were a little bit out there. I love the idea of blocking off one year of your life. There's a number of books like this. There's, you know, I, I, I've read a book about a guy who uh, tried to work in as many Chinese restaurants across America as he could in one year, you know, on the road, doing it and learn about life along the way. Guy worked as a grave digger for a year. And the, the, this is lived, right. someone lived like Jesus for a year. There's all that kind of stuff. So you took a year, you took 12 months. And you decided to become a more spiritual person. And that really is sort of the basis of of this book. And as a freelance writer, it's genius. You're putting a, a deadline on something because we're used to working with deadlines exactly. as freelancers. And uh, and then at the end of it, you have a book. That's right. Well, I was inspired. There's a lot of year ofs. You know, I think the first one was the year a year in Provence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was inspired by two year of books. And one was probably the one you mentioned, A.J. Jacobs, his year of living biblically, yeah. uh, in which he uh, undertook to live all 700 archaic rules of the Bible as literally as possible uh, to to a hilarious extent, actually. And it's, it's actually a wonderful book. And also Gretchen Rubin's book, um, uh, uh, about the year of happiness, I'm, I'm forgetting the title right now. But those, both of those books, really inspired me to to sort of go on a spiritual mm-hmm. adventure for a year and see what happened. And how do you begin something like that? I mean, a lot of us would maybe have an idea like that. I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. I'll go see a psychic. That's how I'll start. And then where do you go from there? Did you make a list beforehand? How did it work? Uh, like I said, I wrote a column for United Church Observer now called Broadview Magazine for four years called Spiritual But Secular. So I wrote about 50 columns where I examined all of these practices from pilgrimage to Reiki to gratitude to uh, spiritual travel, all kinds of things, drumming circles. And uh, so I'd, I'd written about 50, about 50 spiritual practices and I decided to do about half of them. And basically it was just the ones that appealed to me most and that were the most doable. You know, I say this isn't an eat, pray, love, even though I, I really enjoyed that book. I didn't go to Bali and spend $10,000. I did what was affordable, doable. I have a life. I have a family. You know, I had to kind of work it in. I did have a bit of a budget and I did cut back on my regular assignments so that I could right. do this, but I tried to make it very doable. And for anyone who reads this book, there's things that they can do that's, uh, you know, very easy to incorporate in their life. Was there a thing that made you say, I'm going to do this? I mean, you had the column 
And and I understand you have to listen. I've I've freelanced for years. You have to generate ideas all the time. So it's it's a great idea. But was there something more than that? Just other than having to to come up with a a column every week that really pushed you towards this? Yes, I turned fifty five. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know it was my my own sort of midlife crisis, and I. I had gone to four funerals that year, and I started to examine my life. It's amazing how that starts to it happen. Does. Isn't you know, it does. I can't remember the last wedding I was at, you know? Um, and I started to examine my life more carefully, and some things weren't working. I, my children uh, were in university. About I was facing the, the, the looming empty nest. Mm-hmm. There were some challenges in my marriage. I was, I was drinking a fair bit of wine. I say, you know, the couch became my pew and Netflix my church. I was hooked on all these fabulous shows, and I felt like I was watching other people live their lives instead of living my own, and there was a sort of spiritual malaise that I was facing, aging, you know, mortality and all of that, and the whole thing, what's it all about? And I decided to delve into this into this adventure, um, and uh, it, it proved to be quite illuminating and helpful. Let's talk about some of the things uh, that you did. Uh, and there's some standard ones, singing in a choir, starting a gratitude practice. What is a gratitude practice? I get singing in a choir. I understand that. You're, th- there's something that's so freeing and kind of connected to singing these songs and, and you're in within the community of the choir. I get that. I don't know what a gratitude practice is. If I may just say one thing about singing, I did a lot of the traditional choir singing, including sing, going to a singing retreat in Newfoundland. But one very profound experience I had was singing in what's called a threshold or comfort choir to people who are dying or um, artificially, you know, kept alive. Right. And that proved to be one of the most profound experiences of my year. I'd never been that close to death before and, and, and the singing, you know, among these people and, and, the, and just the, you know, I found every time I cried, that was a signal I was being spiritually moved, you know. Um, and in terms of gratitude practice, uh, you know, my gratitude practice is 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 so simple. There's an app I have on my phone. It's a gratitude app called the Happy Tapper. <laughs> I was I was writing things in a journal and writing out five things every day and then emailing them to a friend. And in the end, you know, life gets in the way, you have to do it quickly. So what I do is before I go to bed at night or sometimes in the morning, I tap out five things on my phone that I'm thankful for. And what I love about this app is it keeps a running tab of it. So when you've got one of those blue days, you look at the hundreds of things that you've written. And some of these things are very simple. Some are fabulous. You know, I got my book published. But most of them are the birds at my window, having dinner with my kid. Uh, heart to heart with a friend. There are so many simple moments in our days that we just gloss over and don't pay attention to. You know, a lot of this year was uh, about paying attention. I'm a big fan of the poet Mary Oliver, who talks about uh, attention being the beginning of devotion. And, And that's what I want to do is be more devoted to my life and look at what was right before me. We were talking about simplicity in life and how a lot of the things that we need to be grateful for or feel grateful for uh, are the very simple things like, wow, that cup of coffee was great, you know? And I often will say this, and I've, I've talked about this on the air before, is that uh, my wife is the most lovely person ever because she finds the joy in things where the joy is not obviously uh, or not immediately obvious to me mm-hmm. in, in many situations. And we will be, uh, you know, walking down the street, 
she'll have a, a, a cup of to-go coffee and she'll be like, it's a beautiful day and this coffee is delicious. And, and that is a moment. That is a moment to be grateful for. Whereas I guess I'm just a little bit more cynical <laughs> and I've had to train myself uh, to kind of think of those moments as being special and not just something that happens every day. Right. We are born with our temperaments. You know, some people have the happy gene. Mm-hmm. Most of us have to work for it. Some people have the sad gene. So you're lucky to have a wife like that. Uh, surrounding ourselves with people like that can be super inspiring, mm-hmm. right? Uh, my temperament is somewhere in the middle. I mean, I certainly am prone to blue periods. I haven't had to deal with depression, but uh, with some of the fractures in my life, uh, there's been some downtimes, yeah. right? And I think uh, the whole idea of spiritual practice is about practice. It's about building our spiritual muscles so that we have a, a reservoir to draw on on, on those days when, when life seems difficult. And, and one of the ways to do that is, is by being grateful, is by simplifying, is by not making our lives so complicated. I mean, most of us are plugged in, hyperproductive, and spend a lot of our time purchasing. Mm-hmm. Are these the things that really fill us in the end? Are these the things that bring meaning? Yes, they can be fun and, you know, we pursue them. But so often it's so much more simple than that. One of the basic things I did in terms of simplicity is I read Marie Kondo's book, Me and Nine Million Other People. <laughs> and uh, I had resisted it for a while. I hadn't seen her Netflix special. But when I read her book, I was so motivated to purge my house. I live in a two-and-a-half-story brick mm-hmm. home with 20 years of accumulation. And I tore through my possessions. I I now have 27 books on my bookshelf. I pruned my closet by at least a third. I tackled my garage and basement. These, this is a practical thing, mm-hmm. but I can tell you it was spiritually freeing to get rid of so much stuff. Yeah, I uh, I was for many years a collector, not uh, not verging on hoarder, but I, I like to have things around me. And, and to a, a certain extent, I still do. I like to have things around me in my office. I've got things that just will spark my imagination if I'm sitting there writing or whatever. I'd like to have interesting things around me. Uh, but in the last number of years, as I've gotten older, I've started to purge and hardcore purge things. And there is something that's really kind of freeing about it. And also the things that I'm getting rid of, uh, if it's clothes, I donate them to mm-hmm. uh, shelters and things. If they, you know, depending on what it is, I, I try and give them a second life so that they will have uh, a use beyond what I had a use for them for. And there's something about that that makes me feel pretty good about it as well. Mm-hmm. We don't want to end, have all this stuff end up in a landfill, right? Absolutely. That's not the idea. So giving it away feels really good and lightening our burden feels good too. What happens at a witch camp? <laughs> uh, so I went to a witch camp for a week, um, and uh, I, I kind of went in a little bit undercover as a, as a muggle, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, witch camp was an incredible experience. Like a lot of people, I had a very stereotypical idea yeah. of witches, uh, partly from the Bible, uh, evil sorceresses, and also from literature, you know, the, the witches in Macbeth sort of thing. And then there was Bewitched, who was the lovely <laughs> witch, who I o- always adored. Uh, and I had been to Salem and uh, understood a little bit about the witch history and how witches had been persecuted throughout history. Witch camp was delightful. Um, basically, it was about 60 midlife women, nurses, teachers, average women who who worship the earth, who care about the earth. And my goodness, we could use a lot more of that now. They have rituals around the seasons, around the four directions. 
you know, we did dance around a bonfire in the late evening <laughs> and uh, tell fables and chant. And uh, they have this uh, ceremony where they sort of raise their voices and chant and this coning idea of uh, building to a crescendo and then you would release this positive energy into the earth. You know, I it, it's no more strange than any other ritual, uh, whether it's putting ashes on your forehead or baptizing your baby. I, I found these women absolutely delightful, and I learned a lot about plant life. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, I love the idea of, of, of worshiping our sacred earth, you know, the solstices and all these seasons, all these pagan celebrations that are precursors to Christianity. And do you know that um, paganism is actually one of the fastest growing religions today? Um, so I hope that that will translate into more environmental efforts. And it, it seems to be very female-directed as well. Um, and I think that's a comment on how much of religion has been very patriarchal and excluded women. So witch camp, you know, paganism often embraces women. You also uh, held a death dinner and picked out your coffin. Yes. And what do you learn well, first, well, picking out the coffin, I get that. What, what, what does that teach you, or what do you take away from that? Well, most of us spend our lives denying death, right? I mean, Halloween is coming up. Uh, I'm wearing and, a little skeleton on my go. on my tie. Yeah, I hang skeletons from. I have a, I have what it's called a family tree, and we hang about eight you know dollar store skeletons from the tree, and goblins and ghosts come to my door, and we mm-hmm. we laugh in their face and give them candy. But most of us are completely death phobic, and do you know? 250,000 Canadians over 50 die every year. Uh, like I say, I went to four funerals last year, and it's every death is shocking, isn't it, even though we know we're going to die. So this idea of really thinking about our own death and confronting it and familiarizing ourselves with it and also thinking about how do I want my end to be? What do I want my, you know, what, what should my family do with my body? Do I want them to spend $10,000 on a casket? Uh, can I talk to my friends? My death dinner was basically sitting around talking to my friends about deaths that we've experienced, what our ideal death would be, and what are our last wishes. And I think uh, the more we think about our death, the richer our lives can be because we are aware that an ending is in store for us. It is amazing how many people I know and have spoken to uh, who don't have wills, and they simply don't have wills because they don't want to think about it. They, oh, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. And uh, it is, in in a way, it's a way of confronting your mortality uh, and not leaving a mess behind when you go, if you have anything to leave behind. Uh, but it is amazing to me I how think many only, people don't. I think only half of Canadians have a will. So again, there's that, that whole idea that we are so death-phobic. Um, I think it's important to sort of get comfortable with the idea, to think about what it is that we want. And they say death is the last great spiritual experience, you know, and uh, I experienced a death during my year. My, My stepfather died and there was an estrangement there and I went to his funeral and... You know, we. It also makes us think about people that we ha- have been estranged from, mm-hmm. and what, what, how are we going to feel when they die? Uh, you know, maybe it makes us reconsider things while there's time. I was at a funeral a few weeks ago uh, for. Uh, I, I work in and around the film industry, and it was a film industry uh, person who had passed away young. And we went to this funeral and it was absolutely packed. And the person sitting in front of me, who I've known for 20 years, who was a a publicist, turned and said, 
I'm not going to be able to pack a house like this. Mm-hmm. I have to start being nicer to people. <laughs> so I think there's different ways that we all confront, yeah. you know, the, the, the specter of death. Exactly. I, I've, I've had such a difficult time at funerals, it's embarrassing. I, I, you know, I am prone to tears, and I've been at funerals where it's been like the distant relative of a friend, and I'm a mess in the back <laughs> pew, and the family's fine. Um, you know, and I, I did, uh, I, I was estranged from my biological father and didn't really know him. I write about that in the book, and I went to his funeral in my early 20s, and that was extremely painful. Uh, knowing that uh, there was my close relation who I never knew and death, you know, shutting that coffin shut any chance of a, of a relationship with him. So uh, thinking about death makes us really think about life and how we want to be with the people in our lives. I want to talk about taking mushrooms because, you know, one of the, the great sacraments in, <laughs> in a lot of cultures involves taking some kind of psychotropic drug or natural, naturally occurring drug in a lot of cases uh, and letting your mind wander. Mm-hmm. And what was that like that for you? What Had you had any experience with drugs before? None whatsoever. I smoked pot a couple times in my 20s. It never did anything for me. So right. I was not one of those people who experimented. Uh, so it was the very first time I, I did it. I was actually interested in ayahuasca, but I couldn't afford to go to Mexico to a retreat. <laughs> and someone had said to me that they did psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms, and it really helped fast track a loss that they had experienced. So I did it very, very carefully under medical supervision, a friend who was a nurse. I told my kids about it. I was transparent. And I took a mega dose. I took seven mushrooms. That's the point. That where seems you, like a lot. You, yeah. it, it was a lot. I didn't quite realize till afterwards. And she said, I wanted you to see God. Uh. So uh, it was a five-hour experience alone. I journaled throughout. I filled a book, 72 pages. I had amazing insights into my life. I couldn't believe the experience. It's not like I want to be pushing drugs here, but, uh, you know, Michael Pollan, who's a New York Times writer, wrote a book called How to Change Your Mind, and he Mm -hmm. wrote about all the research that's going on with psilocybin, how it helps people who are terminal to accept their eventual death, how it helps people with depression and addiction. And he kind of legitimized it for me, so I figured it would be safe. It was the most beautiful experience of my life. I realized I had this huge capacity for joy. I had insights into my family, into my children, into my the direction I should go in life. I listened to a playlist for five hours that's used in the psilocybin studies. It, it transported me. And the thing about uh, magic mushrooms and, and LSD as well, although that frightened me, so I stayed away from that, was it dissolves the ego. It dissolves the ego and you really do. And it's so difficult to explain the experience. I try to, I try my very best in the book. It kind of comes out a little bit as drivel because yeah. what is so profound to you in that moment is so, it's ineffable. It's yeah. hard to describe. That's what the philosopher William James said is one of the marks of a true spiritual experience is it's ineffable. So difficult to describe. But uh, believe me, <laughs> it really was incredibly enlightening and beautiful and joyful. And no hangover, and I haven't done it since. Mm-hmm. And it, the, the effects lasted for quite a while. For quite a so you're for about you're, six months. Really, so this, you're like high for not five high, hours. But this this lightheartedness, this ability to go with the flow, uh, to let stuff go. Um, there was an ease that came into my life because of it, and also probably because of all the other things that mm-hmm. I was doing. 
I had always been super suspicious of drugs. I told my kids not to smoke pot and all of that. And when I came home and I told them about it, I'm like, I'm okay if you do this. Just, uh. You do need to be careful where you get it from and who the source is and all of that. Um, but I saw the mushroom plant in its entirety. I didn't feel like I was taking a chemical substance and... Uh, it was incredibly joyful. Was that the most memorable of all of these? That was the most memorable. There there was another psychedelic experience I had with something called holotropic breathwork. This is where it gets woo-woo. <laughs> uh, but this is also something that has been used for decades in North America. Um, and it is a form of rapid fire breathing. I did it with a uh, psychologist. Um, and I was so skeptical going in, and it was a 12-hour experience. I'd be like, there's no way this is going to work, a little bit of fast breathing. Mm-hmm. And I did end up having quite quite an experience. Often what happens is you go back to birth memories and so on. I know I'm sounding kind of odd here, <laughs> but uh, I came home and I told my husband about it, and I'm like, I, I just cannot believe this happened. Pinch me, right? So uh, that was that was quite remarkable. The singing had a profound effect. Uh, thinking about my own death was was quite profound as well. And, you know, all of these things ended up um, having quite a positive effect on my life. And I, I did, and I did make some changes in my life as a result of it, repaired some relationships and, and changed some others. How did this, well, that's the question. How did this year of experimentation change you? You say, you know, you repaired some relationships and things, but overall, as we sit, you know, probably a year or so away from many of these experiences, do you still feel the lingering side effects? I do. I think it's made me more aware, you know, choosing presence over productivity. I, I do tend to be a bit of a workaholic and, uh, you know, I, I am able to step back now and realize there's a lot more to life than work. I'm also a lot more comfortable with my own company. As an extrovert, I always need to be around people. I really wasn't that comfortable with solitude, and I did do a solitude experiment. I'm, I'm much more content, um, and I think I'm more forgiving of myself and, and also of other people. Why is delving into spirituality so important for us? You know, Richard, I, the great spiritual writer Thomas More says that he believes the great problem with our current times is a loss of soul. And I think that was true in my life, and I think that's true for so many people. We have never had higher rates of depression or lonesomeness, anxiety, stress. Um, Many of us are really not content with our lives, and I think it's because we haven't nurtured our spiritual selves. I know I wasn't. There were a lot of factors getting in the way of that. I think some of us, you know, we're often spiritually famished, and we need to fill that reservoir. And there are so many practices that allow us to do that. And, um, uh, you know, the loss of soul is is a sad thing, but I think there are ways that we can rescue our souls, our spiritual selves. Do we overthink spirituality? I don't think so. I think we sort of underthink it. Um, I think it gets ignored. We take care of our exterior selves. Uh, we work out. We care about our homes, our, our things. But often we neglect that sort of part that I call the inner sanctuary of ourselves. And, you know, I did all these exercises, and it was a great adventure, and it did change me, but it uh, wasn't a practice in self-indulgence. I think uh, by tending to our spiritual lives, the effect it can have is that it fortifies us to become better people. And isn't that the whole point? To be more caring about ourselves, our loved ones, and to try to make some sort of positive difference in the world. It's not about navel-gazing. It's really about strengthening our spiritual muscles so that we can be more effective in the world. You have written about spirituality for a very long time. And, you know, the new book is a is sort of 
the, the culmination of that, I guess. But you've also done lots of other crazy stuff here and sort of, I don't know, is it called immersive journalism where you throw yourself at it? Uh, tell me about going undercover in a popular Toronto sex club. <laughs> From spirituality yeah. to sex clubs. <laughs> I was writing for More Magazine, which unfortunately isn't around anymore, a magazine for women over 40. And a friend of a friend of a friend said, you know, I was at a sex club and everyone was over 40. So I pitched this story uh, to write about people who have gone. And of course, my editor said, well, you have to go. So I did that maybe, I think it was about eight years ago. And uh, it was quite enlightening. I went in quite judgmental. And I came out with sort of a different view. Um, you know, I'm not sure what to say about it. It's people building community in people their own building way. building community. <laughs> uh, I didn't participate. I was there as an observer. I, I haven't participated in anything like that personally. But, um, you know, the desire for touch and for sex, uh, for some people it's hard to find. Um, you know, I think we're very judgmental about it. It seemed like a respectful, consensual, safe place, the particular place that I went to. It was extremely eye-opening for this girl brought up in a small town in a fundamentalist religion, I'll tell you that. Yeah, and yeah. it's the article that the most people ask me about. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. of course. Well, it sounds, you know, it's the most kind of, uh, it's the headline. It's, it's the bold-faced headline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you found a brother that you never knew that you had. That's right. Uh, I referred a little earlier to a biological father mm-hmm. who left deserted our family. You know, he had his own issues when uh, when I was very young. I was three years old, and I never saw him again, and I knew he kind of lived this hard scrabble life. And when I was about 50, I discovered that he'd had another son, and I reached out to that son, who was a few years younger than me, and he had been a baseball player, a pitcher for the Red Sox, actually had quite an illustrious career and had retired from that. And I went to visit him in South Carolina. And, uh, you know, the first thing when I arrived at the airport, his wife was there and she looked at us and said, you two look so much alike. And he was a lovely person. We, we haven't really kept in touch. He, you know, he's, he's religious himself. Um, but we uh, trade Christmas cards and I had a wonderful visit with him and he knew nothing. My father had also deserted him. Mm. So uh, we were able to console each other and see that despite this legacy of desertion, we had we were both good parents to our kids and we hadn't repeated some of the mistakes of the past. And of course, my biological father didn't have the benefit of therapy or it was a different time and he didn't get the help that he needed. So the book is called My Year of Living Spiritually. If there's a takeaway from this, and we just have a minute left, if there's a takeaway, what would it be? It would be, I hope you read my book. I hope you might sample from the smorgasbord of, of spiritual <laughs> practices, try some things that you never thought you would. I mean, I did past life regression. It didn't really work for me, but it did for some people I know. Um, be a spiritual adventurer. See what your soul is calling you to do. You know, there's this great quote, if I can leave you with it. It's from a Hindu monk, Swami Vivekananda, and he says, you have to grow from the inside out. No one can teach you. No one can make you spiritual. There is no other teacher but your own soul. And I really think that's true. I think that we are increasingly so isolated as we, you know, sit behind our screens and our phones and Twitter handles and all that sort of thing, that the idea of community getting back to the very beginning of this conversation uh, is something that's so important. And the idea of, you know, putting the phone down, it sounds so hopelessly old fashioned, but putting the phone down and sort of reconnecting with yourselves and reconnecting with other people uh, is probably the way forward. And yet, you know, Richard, I think that's the word, connection. 
connection. Uh, we think we're connected. Uh, the average person spends almost eight hours on a screen. I'm guilty of it too, but we can take control and step back. I think we need to be connected with ourselves, learn to love ourselves, and that allows us to learn learn to love other people more and to and to have a positive impact. So that that need for connection, finding it in whatever way we can. I hope readers connect with my book on some level. That's that's my great hope. The book is called My Year of Living Spiritually from Woo-Woo to Wonderful One Woman's Secular Quest for a More Soulful Life. I've been in conversation with Anne Bookman. Anne, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Richard. We'll talk to you again next week. My thanks to Robert Turner on the board. Most of all, my thanks to you for listening.